Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. This episode will be talking directly about suicide, so this might not be for everyone to listen to right now. But we at Safe Home believe this is a very important topic, so we hope you'll listen when it's safe for you to do so. Today's guest is Frank King, a comedian who wrote for The Tonight Show for over 20 years and who performs stand-up worldwide. Along the way, he focused his creative attention on the topic of mental health and specifically suicidality. Now known as a mental health comedian, he talks openly about his own suicidality and using humor as a tool to open up the conversation. He informs people about suicide prevention, destigmatizes mental illness, and helps people feel seen and heard. He has a few wonderful TED Talks, which I highly recommend, including A Matter of Life or Death, Mental with Benefits, and Born to be Funny. And Frank also coaches other people how to get their own TED Talk, and I hope to hire him someday to reach that goal of mine. That's on my bucket list. So welcome to Safe Home, Frank. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you hire someday too. That's on my bucket list. <laughs> That's on your bucket list. Huh? <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, when did it dawn on you that you could do comedy about suicide? That seems kind of unusual. And most people kind of steer very clear of suicide in general. So why did you think, oh, I'll add my comedy to this topic? Well, it's something that I've lived with all my life, mental illness, although it didn't really rear its ugly head until I was in college. And the suicidality didn't rear its ugly head until I was married to my first wife. And the humor, I told my first joke in fourth grade, decided after the teacher laughed hysterically that I would become a comedian. So I, I knew when I was nine exactly what I was going to do for a living. Nice. And didn't start until I was in my mid-20s, open mic night, mm-hmm. got on stage doing five minutes, about halfway through the five minutes. I heard a little voice inside my head say, you're home. <gasps> nice. Oh, that yep. feels so good. And then my second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but yeah. I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh-huh. So I did that. Actually, my wife and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Oh, my gosh. Comedy Club to Comedy Club worked with Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Ellen and Rosie and Kevin James, Adam Sandler, you know, back in the day. Wow. Nice. Yep. And then came off the road to the radio. And then by the time I got done with the radio, the comedy club boom had busted. Yep. It's and so huh? my act was clean. I thought I could make the jump to corporate comedy after dinner, after lunch. Okay. And people ask me, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? Well, about $5,000 a day plus travel. Nice. So <laughs> I'm no math major, but that made a lot of sense. So I did that until the last recession, 2007, eight. And then the bottom dropped out of bookings. We mm-hmm. lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Uh uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. <laughs> a friend of mine came up after a keynote recently and said, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> so after speaking came back, after people began to convention again, after the last recession, meeting planner said to me, Frank, we love you, but we can't pay that kind of money anymore just to be funny. I have to teach our audience something. Okay. Uh-huh which is something I'd wanted to do forever. I just had no idea what to teach. So I read a book by a woman named Judy Carter. Judy Carter, she wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Nice. And went into a thing and I got nothing about halfway through because she kind of walks you through the process. I realized I do have something. 
given my mental illness, brush with suicide, there are more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd, <laughs> that I had the lived experience. All I needed was some suicide prevention training, some you know certifications, which uh-huh. I did. Okay. I could speak on suicide prevention. So that was the first hurdle. Second hurdle was I've been a comedian for two and a half decades. Everybody thinks I'm just a funny guy. That's all I can do. How do I convince them I can do something serious? Mm-hmm. My wife suggested a TED Talk. I said, what's a TED Talk? <laughs> so I just had to get an application by email that week for a TED Talk up in British Columbia. And so I applied and I got it. And then I got invited to two more okay. based on the first one. And then I've applied for and gotten four more. So I have seven TEDx talks. I think I think, think the most of anybody in the world, as far as I can find. Wow. And then I began coaching it uh-huh. because I thought, you know, I've got the, I've gained the system. I've kind of figured out how, you know, it's a numbers game. You got to apply a lot, but yep. if you're, if you're consistent and you keep at it, chances mm-hmm. are. So that was 2014 when I did my first TEDx talk and that set me on the path of speaking on suicide prevention. I took that TEDx at 18 minutes and I blew it up into a 45 minute keynote. Okay. And then in 2018, January 1st, I decided that I was going to do what they say in the speaking business, pick a lane, pick one thing to speak on okay, and become the expert, the thought leader. So I thought I'm going to speak on suicide prevention. If someone asked me about the other keynotes I have, I'd be happy to do them, but I don't don't market them. Okay. So all I market is suicide prevention and it's my purpose and my passion. Good. My goal is to save a life a day. Mm. And for me... When I speak, it's not academic, it's not technical, it's it's from lived experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, clinicians are great. And, and you know, academic achievements, college degrees, whatever, are great. But mm-hmm. there's a certain lack of context sometimes for people who are neurotypical and are a clinician. Uh-huh. They really have trouble wrapping their mind around what's going on in the mind of the person who's living with a mental challenge. Yeah. So when I speak, I try to, A... Speak to the 25% of the population that has a mental challenge. Yes. And B, try to speak to the 75% that don't and help decode it for them. Uh-huh. Explain them why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. For example, when Naomi Judd died by suicide, a number of people called me. Mm-hmm. Why would somebody who had everything to live for want to kill herself? I said, chances are, like most people, she didn't want to kill herself. She simply wanted to end the pain. Yeah. Yeah. So I tried to do a little myth busting along the way when I speak. So it's, yeah, just, I go to bed thinking about it, wake up thinking about it. It's, you know, somebody said, how do you, how, what's the secret to being confident on stage? I said, well, if you stand in your truth, you'll be confident. Yes. Yes. That's so important. And what we're trying to do here at Safe Home too, is just destigmatize and unshame the world, right? And just talk about the stuff that no one really wants to talk about and using ourselves as Examples. See, we're talking about it and it's actually helping us. It's not making things worse. It's helping us. So hopefully people will realize it's okay to talk to people, find the people you're comfortable with. Right. And, uh, and I think the work you're doing, I've watched your Ted talks and listened to your different podcast appearances and things, and you're just doing amazing work out there. Like you said, educating, and you're so relatable to anyone that's struggled. Oh my gosh, we've been in the trenches over here. And yeah, I'm like, yep. Got it. Understand, understand, understand. Check, check, check. Yes, and a couple of things are at, at play at work. One is I read Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. Love her. Yeah, Love people her. kept asking me, you got to read Brene Brown. You got to read Brene Brown. How good could she be? So I got the audible and I'm walking the dogs. She's talking about vulnerability. And I realized that 
is one of my superpowers on stage because I go on stage and I tell people my story. I tell them I live with two mental illnesses and I came close to dying by suicide. So that's for a man to stand up, a non-clinician, and say those things out loud that men don't normally say out loud because it it, it appears that you're weak. Mm -hmm. it, It has an impact on the audience that a couple of things happening. One is people have a kind of an idea in their mind what mental illness looks and sounds like. And they see me on stage, wrote for The Tonight Show, 35 years full-time comedian, obviously a funny guy, pretty well put together. It really doesn't fit their image of mental illness. So it, if you can change perception, you can change prejudices, mm-hmm. and then if you can do that, then perhaps we can reduce stigma and bullying yeah. and bring down the rate of suicide. Oh. So it works on a number of levels. And I get choked up on stage, again, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I... I did a 10-minute competition set the other day, speech, at a dental festival. And in 10 minutes, I made him cry, I made him laugh, I made him cry. Oh, nice. A little sandwich, huh? <laughs> yeah, in 10 minutes, which is... But, you know, if you're, if you're willing to expose, you know, the, the, the very raw nerve endings. Yep. And then people oftentimes... I say, look, we'll do some Q&A when we're done from a keynote, 15 minutes maybe, general Q&A. And if you have a question you want to ask or a story you want to share and you don't want to do it in front of everybody, I'll hang out an extra 30, 45 minutes and, and talk to everybody individually. And people tell me the most amazing things, most of which they've never told anybody else. Wow, must be an amazing experience. Because I've been there and near done that yeah. and I'm not judgmental in the, yep. in the least. Yep. They feel comfortable sharing. That's great. You were at a dental conference, and I understand that dentists have a really high rate of suicide. Yes, dentists and veterinarians probably one and two in the white-collar occupations. Okay, dentists and veterinarians. Construction is the worst. A thousand people die every year in construction accidents. Uh-huh. Construction suicide deaths, 5,000 a year. Whoa. Five times more likely to jump off the building than fall off it. Huh. Wow. But dentists, yeah, it's, well, it's male-heavy. And eight out of 10 suicides these days are men. Okay. And construction, it's rough and tumble guys, kind of guys that might not be the ones to reach out for help. Perhaps, yes. But dentists, veterinarians, at the heart of that, suicide is not the big killer. The big killer is stress, financial, okay. mental, and physical. And the stress begins when you leave dental school or veterinary school or law school or medical school with a half million dollars in student loan debt. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, that's horrible. And that's before you open a practice. Mm. So stress exacerbated or created uh, diseases, wow. heart attack, stroke, high blood pressure, depression, thought suicide. So it's not checking people's teeth that makes people suicide. It's no. just the stress of I had to buy all this equipment and pay for school and I need clients. And oh, my God, I uh, yeah, that's yes. very, very stressful. Are you willing to share what your you said you have two mental illnesses? Yes. Uh, one is major depressive disorder. It's generally not situational. I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. Mm-hmm. It's more of a wheel with a flat spot that comes around every now and then. Okay. Oh, that's a good image. Mm-hmm. And major depressive disorder generally lasts three days to three weeks, depending on who you are. My cycle happens to be three days. Huh. It feels like somebody's turned up the force of gravity on the first day. Oh. Hard to put one foot in front of the other. And then the second day, I bottom out. Third day, I'm sort of cycling back up. Mm-hmm. So I know when I, when I begin to cycle down, yeah, 72 hours, I'll be back to flying level. Okay. Part of that is because I'm so old. I'm 65. I've been through it so been many through times. through it a few times. Okay. As a friend of mine says in her TEDx that I helped her get, 
depression is just a visitor. Uh, it comes and goes. Yes. And so I know what the cycle is. I realize when it's on its way, when it's on its way. Okay. And so, and I don't, I used to say I fight it, but that's, that's not true because fight implies I can win uh, and, and fighting it. You have to, it takes a lot of energy to fight it. So what I try to do is blend with the energy okay, rather than oppose the energy, just kind of ride the, as I say, surf the crazy until oh, the nice. wave breaks. Yes. yes. Sir. Yeah. Cause it takes so much energy to push back against it. Yeah. What you resist persists. Yes, exactly. So I just jump on the wave and go and try to ride the, that energy until it d dissipates. And by now, you know, it's temporary and yep. you'll come back out and everything will be okay. But even though it seems really, really dark right now, you just keep going. Yes. Gotcha. And gotcha. for younger people who have not been through the cycle so many times, it's far more dangerous, I think, because they haven't been through yeah, it so many times. They think times. this is how it will be forever. Yes. And if it's going to be never going to be any better than this, then what's the point? Yeah. The other thing I have is far more rare. It's called chronic suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. It's not even in the DSM-5, mm -hmm. I don't think. It may be in the next one. Okay. I, I've spoken to clinicians who, who had no idea what I was talking about when I said chronic suicidal ideation because it's relatively rare. It means that for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. Mm -hmm. And I tell the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts, unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. Yeah. That's odd. But every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience who has that. Yeah. Sometimes more. They have no idea it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. I did a college show. A young woman came up afterwards. She said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She said, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself? I go, yeah. She said, I've been having those thoughts all my life. Mm. I thought it was just me, some kind of freak, and all alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life mm. that I'm not alone, and I wept. Wow, that's powerful. There's a little ROI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Wow. I think my son has this. I don't know if he'll ever be labeled with it, but he, uh, suicide is just... Always there, just like always hovering, you know, it kind of swings. And partly with him, he's done so many psychedelics that he kind of feels one with the universe and it's what's the difference between alive and dead. And he'd just rather be on the other side of consciousness most of the time. So it's pretty terrifying for those around people with this <laughs> disorder. Yes. But I actually had a friend that said, yeah, I struggle with this every day. And I said, oh, this might not be something he'll get over. And then it, it, it actually brought me peace, oddly enough, because I thought, oh, okay, well, then we will talk about it openly. And I ask him, how's your SI or your suicidal ideation on a scale of one to 10? What's your SI today? And he'll be like three. I'm like, okay, good. And or he'll be like nine. I'm like, okay, let's go to the ER. You know, so we communicate really openly about it. And right now he's doing fine. But I, I really appreciate you bringing this to the world's attention because it's important to put a face to it. So it's not just some vague thing and to reduce the stigma, like, like we were talking about. It's really important. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And my third TEDx talk was mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Mm. Because I kept bumping into people who are mentally ill who had other amazing superpowers. And I thought this cannot be an accident. Ah. So it starts like this. What if those of us living with a mental illness are, are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? Ah. And what if 
Mental illness is, as Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, David and Goliath, of such things, a desirable disadvantage. You would never wish it on anyone. However, it comes with certain advantages. And what if we could change the frame for a child? Yes, you have a mental illness and treat it. But here's what you probably haven't heard. You probably have some mental ableness your peers can't touch. Mm-hmm. So if we could change the frame from them being broken mm-hmm. to having this duality, this mental illness, but the flip side of it is this mental ableness. I said to the audience, look, I don't think I'm broken. I think I was made this way. I think my depression and suicide are simply the flip side of my imagination, creativity, comedic ability. Yeah. There's a reason I th- I, said, I can teach you to write stand up. I can teach you to perform it. I cannot teach you to process the incoming information the way my brain does, because that's just the way it's wired. Yeah. And so I think if we could change the frame for children and their peers, we could reduce stigma and bullying and eventually child suicide. Oh, yeah. That was the point of the TEDx talk. Oh, that's amazing. Well, and how many comedians have killed themselves? My God, it's a giant list. And actors and... Actors, yeah. Writers uh, and... A friend of mine, a comedian, said one time, there are two kinds of comedians. Diagnosed, undiagnosed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, but some... Extremely creative people. I think it's a it's a delicate balance. It's mm-hmm. it's you need to learn to ride it like like surfing the crazy. You need mm-hmm. you need to embrace the positive aspects and treat the negative aspects. Mm-hmm. I have a self care plan, mm-hmm. and I practice every day. All those mm-hmm. things, five things. And what are your five things? I diet, and I'm on the keto diet, and I intermittently fast, and exercise. Try to exercise every day. Mm-hmm. Good night sleep. Sleep's restorative. Mm-hmm. What worries me about especially in the modern world, the first world, is people brag about how little sleep they can get by on. I know. It's like a badge of honor. It's dangerous. Yeah. I get by on three. Well, you know, the body (laughs) needs recharging. Yeah. It's a good night's sleep is restorative. I meditate twice a day. I have a guided meditation. It's 29 minutes, usually following a meal. And then a little bit of medication. That's my five-step Self-care plan. Uh, that is you know. awesome. I do all those things as well. And I agree. All of them are so important. And it seems like so simple. You're not doing anything like extravagant or weird. It's just eat, sleep, you know, take your medicine, yeah. meditate. It seems so simple, like it can't possibly work, but it really <laughs> does. I don't know. I don't know why. And for me, I have depression as well. I don't think I have the same brand as you because mine is just more like constant but not so debilitating but if i don't exercise for a day or two i can totally tell i need my heart rate to go up for at least 10 minutes a day for me to function correctly yes it's it's amazing and i'm not a physical person i kind of have to force myself to do it but it's i do it for my mental health not for my body really i do it for my mental health to stay stable i just did my third bodybuilding contest oh you really are into it wow nice yeah well i always wanted to do it but I really find bones. And so I thought there's no way I can even place in my 20s and 30s. So I'll wait till I'm 60 something. Okay. In the senior class. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's a master's class. And, and I figured by then pretty much everybody else had given up. And I'm right. Pretty much everybody else had given up. Nice. Good strategy. Yeah. I can see the changes in my body. I can, I can track the improvement. And I recommend that people do something, have a hobby or an avocation yeah. that is completely different from whatever it is they do for a living. Uh-huh. And I speak for a living, whether it's comedy or speaking or podcasting. But you go to the gym, you don't have to speak to anybody. You don't have to say a word. Yeah. And a 25-pound dumbbell here in Eugene, Oregon, 
is exactly the same as a 25 pound dumbbell in Philadelphia or wherever. I mean, it's very, there's a, yep. there's a consistency yeah. to the gym, you know, it's uh, wherever you go. So that seems to help as well. That's great. And you don't have to be funny or, you know, creative or quick or anything. You just are lifting weights or whatever you do. I don't know. Yep. I do the same thing. I'm in a Tyco drumming group. And for a long time, people... I think they didn't even know my name, but they didn't know I had a son struggling with addiction and mental health. They didn't know I spent many, many nights in ERs and was running all over the place. And they didn't know. And that was fine with me. I'm like, I'm just Beth here. I'm just Beth. I'm drumming. And I'm just Beth. I don't need to talk to anybody about this. So I love that. I love that advice. Very good. What are some of the things you teach people about helping somebody to not choose suicide? Well, there's the classics. I teach them to spot the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide. I recommend what to say and what not to say, what to do and what not to do, help them find resources. And one of the things I do for parents, oftentimes, is two things. If the young person has thoughts of suicide but doesn't have a well-formed plan, Mm -hmm. then I recommend you say to them, okay, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then say, okay, tell me why not. Mm. make them give voice to whatever's keeping them here because something is keeping them here. Okay. And the other thing is, one of the three legs of the three-legged stool of suicidality is something called burdensomeness. Oh. You believe you're a burden. You believe the world would be better off without you. Mm. So I tell parents, look, rather than say, oh, honey, but you've got so much to live for, which is not going to make any difference, Mm -hmm. say this, I know occasionally it crosses your mind that we would be better off without you, but we would in no way ever be better off without you. You are not a burden to us. Aha, uh-huh. to voice that out. Yes, every now and then at random times, because yeah. that's that that crosses the mind of a lot of people who are suicidal. Uh-huh. You know, the world would be better off without them. Yeah. Well, and it probably, they probably are, you know, depending what's going on, but they might be causing some chaos and some tumult in the family, but it's important for them to know that they're not making themselves a burden. So I think that's, yes. that's really great. That's really great. I think some parents might be afraid to even talk about suicide at all because their kids might think about it. Yes. And sadly, the reverse is true. Okay. Mentioning it, asking about it makes it much less likely they will die by suicide. There's a senator, I think it's Jamie Raskin, a congressman, whose son died a year ago or so. Okay. And, and he thought his son was struggling with thoughts of suicide, but he didn't want to bring it up. You know, maybe give him the idea, push yeah, yeah. him over the edge. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. And now he realizes that was exactly the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Same with drugs or sex or anything. Not talking about it does not make it any better or it does yeah. not make it make them stay away from it. it. They're already thinking about it, probably. So bringing it out into the open is always the best idea. And if you need to do that, maybe with a therapist or a minister or somebody, if that maybe that would help somebody. Yes. And the National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, Mm -hmm. National Alliance of Mental Illness, they have classes for the families of people suffering from a wide variety of mental illnesses, 12 weeks generally. And they teach you what to say and what not to say, what to do and what not to do, how to find resources. And they have family to family counseling where you you meet in counseling with other families who have a family member with the same issue. So you realize you're not alone in the struggle. Nice. Yeah, NAMI is a great organization. Yeah, and everything they do is free. Nice. Yay. That's great. There are resources out there for people. And I'll make sure and put NAMI's info in the in the show notes for everybody. I, I understand we're not supposed to say committed suicide anymore. That's true. What What are we supposed to say nowadays? 
died by suicide, completed a suicide. Completed. I've also heard you're not supposed to say a successful suicide because that sounds horrible. Like, what did you want them to? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it was it wasn't you know after a fashion success, but yeah, it's not really a word that you connect. Commit has a lot of baggage as a word. You commit a sin, you commit a crime, you commit adultery. Yeah, depression is a chronic illness, Mm -hmm. as is diabetes. But nobody commits diabetes. Right. (laughs) Yeah, we don't call it that, do we? Yeah. So completed or died by. Died by. And Uh the thing about diabetes is, people said to me, I wouldn't take an antidepressant. Well, A, you're not depressed. And B, would you say to somebody who had, let's say, diabetes, insulin, I wouldn't take insulin. Right, right, right. Enjoy the diabetic coma. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The stigma about mental health, psychiatric drugs and and MAT, for that matter, medication-assisted treatments to help people get off of heroin and things. They're so stigmatized and it's so dangerous. We don't do that to people with cancer or diabetes or whatever. We hand them, here, would you like some more? Yes. (laughs) What? You're on methadone? (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm trying to get off heroin. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. So let's try to destigmatize all that. Have you heard about the new 988 number? Yes. The brand new took took forever to to figure out what the best three-digit number would be for the suicide prevention lifeline. Uh, huh. Is that basically what it is? Is a suicide prevention lifeline or yes. more than that? No, it's. I believe it's the same. It's just the same service. It's just a three-digit number. And so what I understand is instead of calling 911, you call 988 and people with guns won't come get you. So yes. that's also good because there is such a thing called suicide by cop, which my son came very close to doing a couple of times, which is you grab or grab for a cop's gun and then they kill you. So yes. that's terrifying. And by the way, there are cops with guns at our schools. And that is one of the places my son almost tried to die by suicide by cop, which is really terrifying. After one of his breakdown, we had a visit from a nice police officer that came to our house. And he was in the doorway of my son's bedroom. And my son was trapped in the bedroom by this cop. I was so scared. My son was going to lunge at him. And I just, I don't want guns anywhere near me when my son is having trouble. So I was so happy about the 988 number. So instead of sending cops with guns, they send social workers or... Yes, and here in Eugene and Springfield, the two cities side by side, all of the police officers and I believe all the sheriffs have had crisis intervention training. Uh Uh-huh, okay. So that when they roll up on a scene, they can decide whether it's a um, crime or a crisis, a mental health crisis. Yeah. So they're less likely to, you know, default to crime, jail. Yeah. And then hopefully they're transported to the proper mental health facility if that's what the issue is. Right. Because these people are not criminals. They are ill. And the behavior looks scary sometimes. But if if you're a skilled person in crisis intervention, then hopefully you will know what's the difference and what yeah. what the person needs. So people should call 988 if they're in the U.S. That's a U.S. number, I think. Yep. and if you're young, a millennial or Gen Z, there's a text line because they discovered younger people are more forthcoming about their emotions and feelings. In text, you send the word help or connect to 741741. Great, great, great. Yeah, because my son hates the phone. <laughs> the, kid, the kids don't talk on phone. Yes, exactly. I have a relative my age and she was calling one of our nieces and well, she won't answer the call. She won't respond to the voicemail. I said, well, text her. Yeah. <laughs> so she texted her, and I mean, within 10 minutes, she texted back. I said, see there? 
Yep. I think I've wasted so much breath on voicemail because I don't think he's ever listened to a single one. I don't think he knows how to get into his voicemail. <laughs> I could do it differently. I, I wonder if you're willing to talk a little bit about, you said you had a lot of mental illness and suicidality in your family. Yeah. Do you believe in intergenerational trauma? Would you be interested in sharing any piece of that part of your story? Yes, it's generational depression and suicide. Mm. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. Oh, tell us. I've heard that story on your TED Talk. It's really tragic and horrible. Uh, but, yes. Uh, so, trigger warning. If this, if you're pretty sensitive, uh, maybe fast forward about five minutes. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a horror movie. Horrible. Well, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt. My mother couldn't reach her on the phone. Got panicked given our family history. So we, we went over, she put me in the car at four years old and we went over to my great aunt's apartment and let ourselves in and nothing out of place until we got to the kitchen. And in the kitchen, the food that should have been in the refrigerator, milk, butter, eggs, cheese, was on the counter. And it was, this is 1960. So it was an old Loctite refrigerator. It didn't have a magnetic strip to seal it. It had a latch. Okay. So if you crawled in and pull the door to behind you, you couldn't get out. Oh my gosh. If you'd driven around the country, you know, off the interstate back in those days, you would see a refrigerator in a field somewhere. Somebody thrown away. Oh yeah. But they always took the door off because they didn't want a kid to crawl in, pull the door to, you know, and die by suffocation. So anyway, oh. my great aunt had decided apparently to crawl into the refrigerator to kill herself. My mother didn't realize this. And at some point, apparently my great aunt tried to claw her way out. Ugh. Oh, God. Yes. And so my mother, me hanging onto her skirt tail, swings the door open. My great aunt falls out and pins me to the floor. Ugh. Yeah, we were face to face. Her face is frozen at last moment of horror. And apparently I screamed for days. Uh, do you have memories of it? I blocked it off somehow. And my mother and people of her generation created a myth that if I ever asked about it, I was to be told that when my mother opened the door and I saw my great aunt, she was sitting in there serenely with her hands folded in prayer. And I shared that in 2012 with a cousin of mine who's 10 years older. And he looked at me and goes, what? Folded in prayer, my behind? When your mom opened the door, the old bat fell out on you and it all came rushing back. Oh, that was a bad day. Yeah. Wow. Because your brain just sort of suppressed it and said yes. too much to deal with. Bricked it off somehow or other. Compartmentalized it. Wow, that is a really, really horrible story. That is really tragic on so many, so many levels. Do you think when you were four, was your family aware enough of how much this could be harmful to you that they gave you support that you might have needed? Or did they just say, okay, well, there we there you go. Let's move well, on. They cared enough to make up the mess. Okay. My mother prayed and told God she'd give up 10 years of her life, 10 years off her life, if I could just simply forget it. But I, I wasn't sent to therapy. I, that, I guess, probably wasn't a thing wasn't back then thing, for yeah. four-year-old. Yeah, for a four-year-old, they would have thought, oh, what can a therapist do? Uh, gosh, that is so hard. How much has your life been impacted by that moment, do you think? Well, you know, since I didn't know it, it was 1960. I didn't find out about it till 52 years later. <laughs> <sighs> but do you, think it, do you think it informed your choices or your triggers or your reactions? Well, scientifically, if you're already hardwired for depression and suicide, and you're that close to an actual suicide, and that's awfully darn close. Very, about as close as you can get. Oh, my God. Yeah. The chances you'll seriously consider taking your life at some other point in your life go up. Wow. 
And of course I did. I came very close. Yeah. So. Wow. Gosh, that's such a, that's such a horrible story. And I'm so glad that you're okay. Was your mom okay? Did she get help around that? I mean, that must've been traumatic for her too. No, uh, she died by suicide slowly, mm. smoking and drinking. Yeah. You know, two freight trains headed toward one another. Yep, that'll do it on the long run. Yeah. You know, I kind of joke sometimes. My son uses all sorts of substances. I used to use sugar. And I'm like, well, mine won't kill me right now, but it will kill me in the long run. I mean, the major causes of death are, you know, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. All of them are fueled mm -hmm. by sugar. So it's just, you know, the speed of the thing. <laughs> speed yes, of it's... Destruction. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, it, sugar is, yeah, white death. I, somebody wrote a book. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's, bad um, for you. Well, and that's why I do the keto diet. It's very few uh -huh. carbs and very, very little sugar. Yeah, yeah, sugar is, and it's super addictive. So I've been off sugar now for five years. So it's helped me tremendously because I understand addiction. I totally get cravings. I totally understand. And recovery is really hard. And so it gave me a lot of empathy for Joey. You know, my addiction everybody pushes on you all the time. Yes. <laughs> His is illegal. So, you know, that there's that difference too, but oh my gosh. What, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that I haven't asked you about yet? Yes. The good news is eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last seven days leading up to an attempt, okay. which means the vast majority of people can be saved, want to be saved. If you're willing to do something as simple as we're doing right here, and that is starting a conversation. Talk about it. Yeah. So that's a lot of hope. I know when you hear of someone dying by suicide, you're just like, oh, shit, that could happen to us at any moment. But there are a lot of warning signs. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Talk about death and dying, Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their music, their artwork, their writing, getting their affairs in order, giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone counterintuitive one dangerous i think is they've been depressed forever and now they're happy for no reason oh. well and you're happy because they're happy but it may be they're happy because they've chosen time place and method ah. and they know the pain is coming to an end oh, that's the danger if you suspect someone is suicidal what do you do in the moment and then maybe what do you do kind of longer term i would ask them are you having thoughts of suicide just like that and I tell people, if you can't do that, find somebody who can. If you can't find anybody who can ask that, here's my cell phone number. Call me and I'll ask them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So ask them. And if they, if they say no, then you look for those signs we just talked about. Uh -huh. If they say yes, then you say, do you have a plan? And if they say yes, then what is your plan? And if it's detailed time, place, and method, then do your best to get them to a mental health facility just for evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, bear in mind... That may buy them a three-day involuntary detention if they decide they're actually suicidal. Yeah. But they'll still be alive. Yeah. It's like a little holding place. Yep. Joey's been in those like six or eight times. <laughs> but they keep them safe. Yes. You know, yes. they keep you safe. It's kind of a little break. Everybody breathes. And uh, you're not in trouble. Just, but yeah, you get three days off of your life. With no belt or shoestrings. Yes. Oh my gosh. His pants falling down. It's very strict. Okay, so that's if they're like acutely suicidal. Mm -hmm. How can a parent, like if they think their son or daughter might have more like your brand where it's kind of all the time suicidal, what do we do with that? Uh, same question. Uh, do you have a plan? Chronic suicidal ideation, one of the symptoms is I'm driving down the road, I look ahead, there's a bridge abutment. And I think to myself, I turn the wheel just a little bit, I can hit the abutment and we're done. 
but it's not really a serious thought, but it, it pops up yeah. frequently. Yeah. And so that's when I would ask the person, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then ask them, well, okay, well, tell me why not. What's keeping you here? So you want to remind them about why they have to wake up every day. Yes. And, and um, I took the assist training, ASISC, something suicide intervention training. Applied. Applied, yes. That moment when they, they give voice to what's keeping them here, they call that a, a turning point. And so you've made them give voice to it. And then you begin, we begin to think about that. And then I would say, look, can we make a plan, you and I, just to keep you safe for today? Yeah. The safety plan. Yeah. That's very, very good. Yeah. And I always tell parents as many times as I can to lock up your fucking medications. Just lock them up. If you have teens in the house, uh, my son just about did himself in several times with cough medicine. DXM has uh, at certain doses can kill you. I mean, I had no idea. No, nor did I. You can kill yourself with just about anything in a certain amount of dosage, right? So lock up your medications, everyone. Lock up your opiates that you had for your dental surgery. Lock up everything from your teens or if you have someone struggling with suicidality. Yeah. I think that yeah. seems um, like a small thing to slight inconvenience, but then nobody can get a hold of your drugs and try to do themselves in. Yep. Well, if people want to get a hold of you to hire you as a speaker or a coach to get on TED Talks, how would they find you? TheMentalHealthComedian.com. The Mental Health Comedian. If they go there, put an email address in. We have four books on men's mental health, a couple of co-authors and I. And I'm narrating them. I finished the first one. So if you go and put an email address in on The Mental Health Comedian, you can download the MP3 of the audiobook on a bridge. And I'm the narrator. Very good. So... Go look up Frank's website and go find his TED Talks. Go look up, I think on YouTube, you can find find them, right? Yeah, most of them. Yep. Most of them. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. And I hope everybody really learned a lot today. This is such an important, important topic. I don't know, every couple of weeks you hear somebody that died by suicide, you know, in the news or a celebrity or God dang. And you just... We just need the tools to be able to prevent it, if if at all possible. Anybody can. Yeah, it can be anybody, a teacher, a, a mentor, a friend. Yeah. A, yeah. And I'm super grateful, by the way, to the young man that took my son to the school nurse on the day, the morning after he tried to kill himself. And that started our whole process, which is incredibly painful. But without that friend saying, oh, but we got to go to the nurse right now. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. So... Those people that kind of are paying attention, yep. pay attention and speak out and, and do something to help. So, well, thank you again, Frank, for being here. This was awesome. I really appreciate uh, you talking to us about this topic. Oh, my, my, my pleasure. Maybe we saved a life today. I hope so. That's our definitely our goal. Joey, when we started this podcast a year ago, I said, Joey, how will we know if we've been successful? He said, Mom, if we help one person... We've done our job. So yeah, I think it, one person a day is even better. Better. <laughs> yeah, that's my goal. Yeah, I mean, love is stops us out altogether, but that's a that's an audacious. Uh, yeah, one a day. That's very good. Well, and please share this episode with someone you think that could benefit from this information. And find Safe Home Podcast on all the social media sites. Our website is safehomefamilies.com. So you can find our events and things like that. I also have a group for adoptive parents. 
So check that out. And I wish you all very, very well. I hope everything is okay in your family. And if it's not, please talk about it and uh, get the help you need. So in the meantime, Frank and I want you all to stay, stay safe. safe.